house looks just like the one next to it. And the one next to that. And the one next to that. A young couple live in it. Give Ken a kiss. <laughs> you are so unlucky. With their three children. <laughs> and something more. Remember last night? Do you remember when you woke up and you said yeah. you were here? Uh-huh. Well, who did you meet? Who's here? TV people. Something's funny going on here next door. Something, uh... We were wondering if maybe you had experienced any disturbances lately. What kind of disturbances? I don't know what hovers over this house. is a frightening new threshold into a world within our own. Its form is revealed. What is it? Its focus is clear. And the games are over. It knows what scares you. Hey everyone and welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, your horror movie podcast that is covering every single horror movie franchise, one movie and one entry at a time. I am your host, Mike Snoonian, and folks, they're here. I feel like we have to get that one out of the way very early. Uh, who are we joined by tonight? Up first, we have Jerry Smith, who's been with us from day one. Jerry, how are we doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm, uh, see, I I start I always start by saying, oh, I'm excited about this. And then I realize I say that every single episode. Right. But Poltergeist, like, I, I love the first movie. Uh, it's rare to hear this, but I actually love the second movie even more. Ooh. And the Excellent. and the third one the third one's a little fun like a little fun mm-hmm. uh, but I I do really love the series and the remake it's it's there but uh, yeah no I'm so stoked on this series uh, a lot of people wanted us to cover Poltergeist I mean it won the kind of poll so you know hopefully these turn out good quick question when we actually get to the remake do we just do Insidious. <laughs> I'd rather do Insidious, to be honest. I can't wait to get to that series, and I've only yeah. seen the first Insidious movie, but it's so good that I think that'll carry me through the whole, the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, we are also joined by Veronica once again. Veronica, how are we doing? Hi, I'm good. Uh, I'm pretty excited to be here tonight. And you have just rushed home from work to join us. I did. I couldn't wait. I mean, I poured a drink first, guys, mm-hmm. but <laughs> but yeah, couldn't wait to get here. What is Friday night like at the library? 
Well, uh, so I don't actually work in a library. Like you just made me feel called out, but I'm a a librarian. (laughs) No, I'm a systems librarian. So I work with the computers and actually, um, I worked from home at (laughs) this, this evening, uh, on my laptop. So, um, it was a pretty cozy night. I got to say at the library. Excellent. So what you're saying is there was no rushing home. You maybe switched chairs, basically. Hey, I went into another room and I shut the door. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. As we are doing this, I am getting my feet licked by a rabbit. So if I start to giggle, that's pretty much where I'm at. We are after the feet being licked, just to like a little cliffhanger. Uh, we are also joined by Brian. Brian, how are we? I'm doing excellent today. Thanks. Excellent. Glad to be here. Excellent. And Veronica, this was your choice, if I remember correct, for the next series that we were going to cover. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's a series that, well, I'll just say it's the, the first movie um, is one that uh, just always haunted me for, as a kid, it was such a big deal uh, to me and it hit all of my fears. So I just wanted to talk about it. So I think, you know, what I always love to do is I love to start our discussions by how we came to, like, discover these movies and what they meant to us when we first connected with them. And you know what, Veronica, I think since you, um, this was your choice, like, go ahead. Like, how did did you come to become familiar with this? Was this, like, a a film you found as an adult or did it touch on, like, some childhood fears? You get to see it at a young age. Yeah, I luckily got to see it at a young age. It was, I mean, it was only rated PG. So my parents picked it up at probably like a blockbuster sale or something. So Mm -hmm. they grabbed it. We owned it. And I watched it once and was terrified of it. It's what I would show my friends when they came over for sleepovers. But I would sometimes leave the room during the scary parts. Um, There's so many visuals from this movie that are burned into my brain. Uh, Some of it not even scary, but just, you know, the kid caked in mud and blood Mm -hmm. and... Um, it just, as a kid, I was terrified that someone was going to take me. I don't know why, but I was so scared. Someone was going to come to my window and just take me. Um, Mm -hmm. and just the flickering of the TV, it's just so visceral. It's, uh, I don't know. It was so much of my fears as a kid and watching that I'd already had those fears. It just, it just amplified them. Absolutely. I think what you said hits under the head like this to me is a gateway horror movie for a lot of us overall, especially if you come from a certain age. Um, I just rewatch it again for family movie night with my wife and my daughter and my daughter is nine and she's got a pretty refined horror palette overall like she her favorite movie is elm street part three (laughs) she's watched the thing with me and that didn't give her any any trouble at all but there were three points in this movie where she cringed and like kind of cowered into us and was like this is really scary Mm. and i think that's fascinating how about yourself brian i know you've said the sequels are what really hit you hard but what is it about the first movie well, the first one, um, I think it's, I saw it, uh, if I recall, the first time I saw it was with my older brother's Cub Scout group, okay? We were having a den meeting or something like that, and we watched it, and I was sort of able to tag along with the group. Um, so I must have been five at the oldest mm-hmm. when I saw this for the first time. 
Um, so it's kind of always been there. But the thing is, I didn't watch it. After seeing Poltergeist 2 and 3, which really got under my skin, I did not go near the series for a good, you know, like 30 years. Mm-hmm. Because it scared me so much. Um, the first one, what really got to me is the face-tearing scene. Mm-hmm. That's that, And even worse than that, I think that steak crawling across the counter. Just stuff with food is just so, <laughs> so creepy to me. Uh, anyway, uh, but I'm sure we'll talk about some of those things. But this one, um, it doesn't have quite the same sort of into my psyche um, feeling that the other two have. But um, it definitely has always been there. It's been one that it's, it's such a mainstay of um, 80s kid horror movies because, you know, it was one of the first movies we got um uh when we got a vcr you know it was one of the first ones we rented and we were able to watch so because it was mm-hmm. pg and because it was spielberg and uh, in the as part of it anyway uh and that was sort of safe for for us you know right i know from us I, and I think, Jerry, you and I were kind of, I think, discussed this a little bit before. They used to show this movie in my elementary school. Mm-hmm. Um, I come from a town like on the East Coast, and I would say it would be kind of similar to the suburban housing that you would see in Poltergeist overall, although there wasn't quite the same level of sameness to a lot of the homes in my development. There was this idea that, like, any stretch of land – uh, that's available should be like dug up and raised and, you know, be made to be like a kind of a suburban outpost. So the school I went to, we would very often have these movie days, uh, either usually at the end of each term where they would march the kids in the cafeteria and you would usually get movies like Herbie, the lug bug or a Benji movie, or, you know, um, the fish that it was at the fish that ate Pittsburgh or something like that. Like one of the Don not oh, yeah, movies. Um, you would usually get stuff like that, but every now and then you would get something kind of weird and awesome. Um, we got, I think, a few times poltergeist in our school setting. So you would march all these kids from first grade all the way up to sixth grade to the auditorium where you would have like 600 kids sitting. And all of these kids would get to watch like a man claw off his face into bloody chunks. And, you know, <laughs> Mrs. Freeling basically doing some swimming with some corpses that are popping up out of the ground. And it was like absolutely amazing that you could get away with this in the 80s. To be fair, the school also showed a few times the movie The Toy, which <laughs> for wow. people that aren't familiar, it stars Jackie Gleason as a very rich white male who literally buys Richard Pryor. So his spoiled brat of a kid can have like a plaything. Um, that movie is so blatantly racist. So and, also, and there's so many sexual innuendos into that movie. In that movie, I mean, uh, the little kid, his last name's Bates, and his butler calls him Master Bates. The whole <laughs> <laughs> and what's, what's funny about like that whole time uh, that Mike's talking about? You know, I, I grew up roughly around the same time, and. It was such a different time. And, you know, like I I once won a Halloween costume contest and my costume involved like a gun and a knife. 
Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, we traded Nightmare on Elm Street posters openly in school and teachers didn't have a problem. And I think the loophole, the reason that like people like Mike and myself that we saw films like Poltergeist or E.T. and that kind of stuff during school is because PG-13 didn't exist at that point. A film was either PG or R. So the loophole is, you know, uh, for me, I would bring movies and my teacher would be like, well, what's it rated? PG. Okay. And then they say penis breath and ET and I get in trouble or, you know, stuff like poltergeist happens and people are like, what the fuck are our kids watching? Mm -hmm. But what's interesting about that time really quickly, like I said, PG 13, PG 13 didn't exist. And this is kind of jumping ahead just for a second, but poltergeist was originally rated R, uh, it, because, you know, PG-13 wouldn't come for another two years because all these parents took their kids to see Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom <laughs> and almost rioted to the point of, you know, causing a big stir to where the MPAA created a whole new rating based off of parents being pissed about Temple of Doom. And the first PG-13 was Red Dawn. I feel like if films like Poltergeist had come out like two years later, they would have gotten that PG-13 rating, you know. And But what's crazy about that time growing up in those schools – is that's how a lot of us got away with it is because of that lack of the PG-13. And what's amazing too, when you look at the rating board now, like if there's like smoking in a movie, there's a lot of push towards that movie being an R rating no matter what, right? So you could have like an animated movie with talking chipmunks that maybe take a drag on a butt and you're like R rating, you know? Um, (laughs) PG-13s are allowed, I think, one fuck in the movie. They're Mm -hmm. on one F-bomb. Here you have like Craig T. Nelson and, excuse me, uh, (laughs) Joe Beth Williams like basically like getting stoned in bed. Right, Mm -hmm. yeah. Right? And it's a really sweet scene and it's played as a completely normal, fun thing to do. Like they're not – they're right in the open with it. You know, I think there's like it's played for comical effect when the little boy comes into the room and he's like, you know, hey, the storm is really bothering me and mom's trying to put it out. But it's kind of seen as like, yeah, it's a kind of a natural thing. And like you're showing this to six year old, seven year old, eight year old kids like no big deal, um, especially this being kind of the height of the just say no era with Nancy Reagan. And you have like this really nice white suburban family just like sparking up a dube on a on a Wednesday night. Like it's no big deal. Right. Yeah, I, I well, definitely yeah. identify with that. <laughs> <laughs> What I love about that scene, too, it's while while he is uh, reading a biography of Ronald Reagan. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And she's reading uh, Carl Jung. I mean, she's reading like the the psychology of Carl Jung. So it's basically – What's hmm? brilliant about that, though, and I'm trying not to skip ahead too much, is that kind of juxtaposition of the two things that they're reading. It speaks on – both of those characters, mm-hmm. you know, the wife is a very spiritual person, uh, whereas the husband, you know, he's kind of rejected that his whole life and he's more like conservative and that kind of stuff. Yeah. He smokes pot, but I mean, don't we all, but, uh, you know, like, I think that that is what kind of jumping back a little, that's what really appealed to me as a kid watching this movie, not the pot, but, <laughs> uh, because like, you know, in all these movies, these big studio movies, I didn't really identify with a lot of the family dynamics because that's not what I lived, you know, like in all these movies, typically you get these kind of like upper class kind of rich families that go through this stuff and, you know, being kind of like a poor kid, you know, like 
my dad was on welfare. My mom was like non-existent, Mm -hmm. you know, like our, our, our city had to give us Christmas presents. You know, I think watching poltergeist at an early age, the family's far from perfect. In fact, if anything, I think more than a ghost film, I think what poltergeist is, it's two parents who don't know how to be parents and Mm -hmm. are in over their heads, really discovering what it's, what it truly means to be a parent, a guardian, and learning how to do mm-hmm. that, you know? And even from an early age, like very early age, you know, I'm not patting myself on the back or anything, but I, I think I was able to kind of connect with those themes because that's what I knew. You know, my dad was an awful father, but not because he was a bad person, just because he had no idea how to be mm-hmm. a dad. And I mm-hmm. think that's what's so great about Craig T. Nelson and Joe Beth Williams' performances in this movie, they capture that so perfectly, you know? Uh, And, you know, I'm not going to go off too much on a tangent, but, uh, you know, it could be said on one hand that, you know, Craig T. Nelson doesn't really care or he's kind of disconnected from the whole situation, but I don't think it's that. I think what it is, is like I'm saying, he didn't, he doesn't know how to be Mm -hmm. the man of the family. And I don't mean the kind of alpha male person i just mean like he doesn't know what it's like to truly be a parent to be a husband even i don't like the tree dad this is an old tree it's been around here a long time hey, it was here before my company built the neighborhood i don't like charms he knows everything about us rob that's why i built the house next to it so it could protect us you and, and carol ann and dana and your mom and me it's a very wise old tree. Looks at me. It knows I live here. You know, I think the storm's gonna pass us. How do you know? Because I can count. You know what you do? When you see the lightning, you count until you hear the thunder. If you can count higher each time, that means the storm's moving away from us. Wanna try it? Uh, you know, like he's, he's very flawed. And I think he yeah. learns that as the film goes on. What I caught from just watching it again this evening and what I appreciated about Craig T. Nelson's performance, like the character of dad, like of Steve Freeling is he, if there's not like a physical object in front of him that he can tackle or wrap his head hands around, he doesn't quite know how to react. Like if you put something physically in front of him, he can deal with it at that point. You know, um, but when it comes to the metaphysical, when it comes to a problem that has to be tackled by the mind, when it comes to something that's going to take imagination and faith, then it's something that he doesn't know how to do. And that's when he freezes up and that's when he just like can't deal with it. And that's what he really Really, you see him fall apart at the seams here. The other thing I found really interesting, like one thing that I kind of missed the few times I had seen this before, is when they talk about the ages of the family members, uh, the oldest daughter, Dana, is supposed to be 16 years old. And Steve and Diane are, they say, 32 and 31 years old. So they had, they became parents at a really young age. I mean, they became (laughs) parents basically. It's 16 years old. And I don't mean to play that for laughs. I, I really mean like to your oh, point, Oh, I think Sherry, you meant 41, 42. I'm sorry. I thought you'd said 31, 32. That's what I'd heard. And I thought it was they were five or six years old. And I'm like, holy cow. But I think so. in the movie um, he says they're like in their 30s. Am I wrong about that? Or Yeah, yeah, they're young. 
Yeah, they say they say thirties. So I mean, oh my you, god, okay, I did my math wrong. No, you're good. Sorry. So when you do that math, you're looking at them <laughs> being like young teenage parents that have managed yeah. to do really well for themselves, which is definitely. You know, statistics will tell you is definitely not the norm. Well, I mean, have they though? I mean, they. I think that the reason that they have that home is completely just because uh, he has he kind of fell into that really nice job. Mm-hmm. You know, it. I, I think other than that, I mean, they're kind of like. I think they're the way that they're presented. I I kind of have always gotten always gotten the kind of lower class working mm-hmm. class vibe. Off I of get them. that too, and I think they got a great deal on that house, being like you know all things considered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I do think that like he, he's told by his boss, like, look, you're responsible for about forty three percent of the homes we've sold. Like, I think mm-hmm. he said they've put like seventy million dollars into their bottom line overall, and he's told like. We really should have been made, we really should have made you a partner like three years ago. So I would say like by what you would con- consider like traditional trappings of success, and I yeah, think sure. it's yeah, maybe he's not college educated, but at the same time, he's bright enough, he can read people, he's personable, like he's charming, he can, and he's a hard worker. So you know, he has had success, and I think like, it's okay to be blue collar. And I think, yes, they got the house because it was like basically the model home and it's theirs for the taking, but he's offered that position because of the success that he's had in the roles they've given him overall. Yeah, totally. And I also think that it it speaks on this kind of uh, mentality that a lot of us were brought up on, uh, where that is what the role of a father is, you know, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. a successful father, if you work, 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 and it's more about working. And like you said, what is in front of you, than the more spiritual side of being a father, you know, and, you know, maybe I'm doing it wrong because I've always like shunned that kind of way of thinking, but like, mm-hmm. I'm such an emotional person with my kids. Like if anything, like maybe, I mean, I've, I've shunned so many like writing gigs, uh, you know, held them off for a few days just so I could like hang out with my kids, you know, like mm-hmm. I've, I, I think that that is one of the great things about the film is that you get that kind of old school mentality, you know, that kind of what is it in front of me? I don't know how to respond to because, you know, it's all about work, work, work. And mm-hmm. you also get, you know, Joe Beth Williams character, but I mean, God damn, she's good in this movie. Oh, uh, yeah, you know, movie. that is mm-hmm. such a spiritual anchor for that family. And I think the combination of that works so well. And I mean, I, I'm going to have so many uh, times in this episode where I'm just so much like leaning towards Poltergeist 2, because I think that dynamic is just further explored in such great ways in that movie. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I love what they do in this one. Excellent. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the history behind creating this film. And look, there are two things whenever you discuss Poltergeist, the two things that always come up is, is it a Spielberg movie or a Toby Hooper movie? And we'll definitely get into that towards the end, but I don't want to make that. I don't think any of us want to make that the focus of our show. Um, I think we really want to stick mostly to discussing the movie itself. Um, And also the quote unquote poltergeist curse, which eh, we'll see how long we run. And if whether we get that to that this week or we get to it with the sequels overall, but what do we know about what actually went into making this movie before we get into the major themes of it overall. 
Well, I think that like uh, the Who Directed It or The Curse or many other things that have come with Poltergeist, something that has always been a part of it is this kind of like uh, multiple people kind of saying how it all went down kind of thing. So like this is one of the most unreliable narrator fields backgrounds and pre-production, post-production of this whatsoever. You know, Steven Spielberg uh, was prepping E.T., you know, according to some, Steven Spielberg was prepping E.T., and in his un- contract with Universal, it said he could not direct another movie while he was prepping E.T. He wanted to do Twilight Zone, you know, according to, you know, uh, John Leonetti, I believe he said that. He, uh, Spielberg wanted to direct Twilight Zone. Uh, contractually, he couldn't, so he kind of got Toby Hooper to, you know, be, be the face of who directed it, kind of like what Kurt Russell did on Tombstone. And what, uh, you know, S- Stallone did on Rambo, you know, uh, both of those movies, uh, Kurt Russell and Stallone used uh, George Cosmatos as a ghost director when re- in reality, those two directed those films. Mm-hmm. But that is what is sometimes said about Poltergeist. Uh, according to others, you know, Spielberg co-wrote the script with some other writers, uh, you know. Hooper came on board as director and the rest is history. But I, there's also a lot of kind of controversy with the background. Uh, you know, anyone that is a big twilight zone fan can kind of see that the Richard Matheson, uh, episode in season three, little girl lost. The plot is so close to poltergeist. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a family that loses their daughter in a, to another dimension through an opening, you know, having to come to terms with their faith and tons of other stuff, it, you know, in the development and when the film came out, you know, there there was talks of a lawsuit from Matheson. He went on record saying how much he felt lifted by Spielberg, you know, and much like the who directed the movie debate, you know, there's always whether or not the script was kind of lifting off of Matheson's Twilight Zone episode to so much to the point that it's that it's also been said to stop Matheson from suing him, Spielberg hired him to be one of the writers on Twilight Zone, the movie, which he produced. So, I mean, even the history of pre-production is rich in, like, really interesting behind-the-scenes stuff. You know, uh, whether or not Spielberg had always attended to, you know, attended to direct it or not is, you know, in question. But, I mean, I, I just think the story is interesting in general, how it comes mm-hmm. to be, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we'll definitely duck into, you know, why you can make the argument either way. Like, or I think like many movies where you have like a very strong executive producer, especially Mm -hmm. one with the directing chops of a Steven Spielberg, you get something that becomes more of a collaborative effort that really isn't owned by any one person, but becomes like a real kind of team effort that you can see – Really hints of both men and what made their films, especially during this time period, so special. Um, I think the unfortunate thing is because this debate exists, it very much changed the trajectory of Toby Hooper's career and how he was perceived. Oh, totally. I mean, you know, after Texas Chainsaw and, you know, a couple of the other ones that followed afterwards, I, you know, he was kind of set up to be the next, you know, you know, golden boy, mm-hmm. you know, and with all the controversy of poltergeist, I mean, can you imagine being a director, you know, putting everything you can into a movie just to get like 
kind of railed afterwards. I mean, even Spielberg went on record and had a couple jabs that he ended up having to put out an ad in one mm-hmm. of the trades to set straight. You know, having a big producer kind of like talk about you that way, you know, that like it might not be a big deal for some, but even as somebody, you know, trying to be a, a director, I mean, fuck, Hooper's career definitely, I think, was mm-hmm. changed. The trajectory was changed. After that, you know, he went off to do, you know, some of my favorite movies. But at the same time, and they were kind of canon movies, you know, they right. weren't like these universal or other movies, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I think that it definitely hurt his career. Yeah, it's really when you look at his early career, you start off with a Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which not only is one of the greatest horror movies of all time, but it's also one of the largest and biggest financial successes of all times for a low budget movie. And I think to this day, we don't quite know exactly how much money that movie actually took in because of all the shady financing around the movie. And it'll be kind of fascinating to discuss that when we get to the Texas Chainsaw series. You have Salem's Lot uh, for CBS, which is a massive success back when networks sunk real money into TV movies. Um, This early adaptation of Stephen King's work is just brilliant. And to this day, like it remains Really, my introduction to horror movies is Salem's Lot. I remember the jailhouse scene and seeing just that and then running and hiding under my bed and crying because it Mm -hmm. scared me so much. Then you have The Fun House, which is a very excellent uh, early entry into the slasher subgenre. So you have this trio of films that really are setting him up and establishing Hooper as a master of horror. Poltergeist is a massive success, but... rightly or wrongly, nobody wants to really give him, they really want to minimize his contributions to the movie. No, totally. And, you know, who's like, who knows where his career would have went if Mm -hmm. Hooper had given, been given, uh, you know, some of the credit or as much Mm -hmm. credit as he's deserved for this film. I mean, you know, even looking at the notes, I agree with you a hundred percent. There are moments in this movie you could argue that Spielberg directed it. Me personally, it's a Toby Hooper movie to me. Uh, but there are moments that are just one hundred percent Toby right. Hooper. Right. You know? And let's get so let's talk about some of these moments. Let's actually yeah. get into the movie itself. So, who would like to give our listeners like a nice couple minute for those who either haven't seen it or haven't watched it in years? Who would like to give a little synopsis here of what Poltergeist is all about? I can throw in on this one. Let's do it. Okay, so uh, we have a uh, middle-class family, nuclear family, the Freelings, and they live in a nice neighborhood out in the suburbs, and they're living the American dream, and um, one day they discover that uh, their house is has some interesting disturbances that occur, uh, and then uh, the little girl, Carol Ann, uh, disappears into a ghost dimension. Uh, some some uh, paranormal experts are, are consulted and brought in. Um, and then finally, Zelda Rubenstein <laughs> is brought in to uh, clean the house out once and for all and get, and get Carol Ann back, um, which does happen. And um, then all hell breaks loose at the end. After you think everything is just fine, and uh, we discover that um, 
some interesting shady dealings have been going on behind the scenes that lead to the climax of the movie where essentially all hell breaks loose uh, from underneath the house. And I, I think that that's where the film goes to like just 100% Hooper territory. Oh, that, that last, Mm -hmm. uh, that last uh, half hour or so. Mm -hmm. It's just like, yeah. Yeah. One thing after another. And it's, and it's, it's, you know, the gravestones come, (laughs) not just, I mean, they actually, the caskets coming up, just bursting up through the ground and, you know, the sparks and the flying across the room, all that stuff that's going on in that last half hour is, is pure Hooper. Well, that, and I mean, I think that Toby Hooper doesn't get enough credit for his kind of, uh, like dissection of, uh, you know, like dissecting, like just the American family, you know, the nuclear family in his films. I mean, Texas Chainsaw is 100% a jab at that. And I think Poltergeist is a really good extension of what he did with Texas Chainsaw. Very different films, definitely. But he's so good at just ripping apart and looking at the inside of what makes the American family just that and what is wrong with those ideas, what is wrong with the, you know, quote-unquote, live in the American dream and so on. And I think that that just chaotic ending when you think everything is good, when everything should be wrapped up in a little bow and everything's good, that it spins even like more out of control. That's 100% Hooper for me. Yeah. And I think, you know, my, my ultimate feeling of this movie entirely from beginning to end, from the fact that they play, the national anthem is the first thing you hear and you see, you know, Craig T. Nelson sedate asleep in front of the TV is mm-hmm. the subtext of the whole movie. OK, so this is this movie from beginning to end is a rebuke of the Reagan revolution. Uh, mm-hmm. You have the ideal American family. You have two point five kids. And I mean that literally because one of them is absent for half the movie, <laughs> you know, Um, they have the beautiful home, everything, but it's like, okay, the film is saying we had all these issues of the fifties and I'm sorry, the sixties and seventies that we never really dealt with. We had Vietnam, we had the civil rights movement. We still have racism. We still have, uh, you were still dealing with Watergate. We're still dealing with all of these things. And if we don't, if we, and we just built something pretty on top of it called the 1980s and but those those ghosts are still there, and they're going to come for us if we don't deal with them. They're going to come for us, and they're going to come for our children. And we're sedating ourselves with TV and with all sorts of things like that. That's, that's to me, what is going on in this movie. Well, even the relationship between uh, the Freelings and their neighbors. I mean, there's that. Yes. Very, they're very humorous, but interestingly, I think, you know— like important scene where basically Craig T. Nelson and his neighbor are fighting over who's controlling the television. Yeah. You know, and they're so passionate. Yes. They're having a war. They're so passionate about who is controlling the TV and what example like is there, what example could be better about American just men in the eighties other than fighting over a football game? (laughs) You know what I mean? 
it's it's such a good scene that I mean is off like definitely comic relief, but at the same time further like explores like what you were just saying about, you know, mm-hmm. the Reagan era, you know, the sixties and seventies leading into the eighties. And the eighties was such a extravagant time, uh, not just in fashion, but even in like like, you know, we had to leave it to Beaver era, you know, in, in like the fifties and stuff. But the eighties was that kind of shit being forced on onto people. You know, Reagan forced that stuff. He tried to recapture that Leave It to Beaver era and it completely backfired. Well, I think it's true that you even see that now. You see the whole idea, and not to get too political, but when someone says or when they wear like a MAGA hat, when they say make America great again, what they're trying to say is like make America great again for white people. Basically. Of Right. I mean, am I, I don't think I'm really kind of really throwing any stones here when I say that. Like America say- was never great before, except for white people. So mm-hmm. you're right. Right. So it's this idea that like the nuclear family, the white picket fence, dad is the bread earner, mom yes. stays home. You know, you're everyone knows their neighbors. That's the idea that they want to go home to. And there's a very structured uh, hierarchy overall with white people on the top of it. And there's this idea that there is always something that can be consumed, whether it's content, whether it's some sort of shiny new gizmo, whether it's, you know, carving out space in the backyard so you can put like an in-ground pool in there uh, just just so you have that one other thing that your neighbor Mm -hmm. doesn't have overall. And this movie is very much poking kind of holes and poking fun at this idea that you always have to be kind of competing and always have to be moving uh, in in trying to acquire things in order to be kind of happy and successful. I think there's a couple really telling but small moments in the movie. You have that very sweet interaction where they bury Tweety and have the little death for her for the uh, the little funeral for the bird. Not on, not less than three scenes later, you have this bulldozer basically digging up the grave, up, yeah. and you see like this, you know, little candy box carton being just like tossed over to the side, like it meant nothing. Like, mm-hmm. all right, on to the next thing. Even the little girl's reaction, even Carol Ann's reaction, it's like, it's like their body's not even cold yet. They just bury it, and she has this cute smile on her face. Like, can we get a goldfish now? And the cut. <laughs> Mm-hmm. smash cut to her feeding her new fish. Mm-hmm. Well, it's such a, it's such a good look at all of those things. And, you know, even going back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, Craig T. Nelson's character being kind of that typical, you know, stereotype of men back then where it was just pushed into us that that is what a man was. And, you know, with, there's a lot to, that is said in Poltergeist that further shows what like that kind of stuff that was forced on a lot of us, you know, where it's not just that Craig T. Nelson needs something in front of him to believe it. And that Joe Beth Williams is spiritual. It's the fact that, I mean, even growing up as a kid, my family taught me that men don't feel, they don't talk about their feelings. That is a woman's thing. And it's, that's bullshit, you know, but I think poltergeist is another example of that. You know, the husband and wife love each other, but they are very much that stereotypical, you know, old traditional values of 
you know, well, she's a spiritual one because she has the emotion she feels and I'm just a worker, you know, and I, I think there's so much to poltergeist that, you know, in watching it and getting scared or entertained or having a fun time, I don't think it's talked about enough how deep the first poltergeist film really is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What other little character moments can we point to? Because I think a large part of what makes this movie work. And you know, one of the things that I, I think detracts from the film is it is a bit overlong to me overall. It just over it's just under two hours overall. It can sometimes move at a little bit of a glacial pace, but there are a lot of character moments in this movie that really flesh out the family without giving you an exposition dump overall. There's one moment I caught at the end of the movie that I had always missed before where when, excuse me, when mom says like, all right, we're going to be going to that holiday Inn off route 74. And the oldest daughter is like, Oh yeah, I remember that place. And mom is like, wait, what? And it's a blank. If you miss it, little comedic, but, and again, I think Jerry, it speaks to your point. Um, Mom and dad don't they don't know what's going on with their little girl. And as soon as the shit goes down, they pawn they pawn. It's like it's really telling. They're like, we don't know how to keep our children safe. So we're mm-hmm. gonna send them somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's kind of that, you know, in the you know, old days, if kids were different, that is what happened. You know, you'd send them to boarding school. You send them to a mental institute, mental institution. You send them to all these other things instead of taking care of the problem. And I'm so happy that we live in 2020 where that's not the case. Mm-hmm. You know that there's, you know, I mean, obviously we have awful things like school shootings and shit like that. But we also live in a time where if kids having a hard time, or if you're having a hard time with your kids, there's so many resources out there that you know help in ways that wasn't they they it wasn't around you know, in the poltergeist era. And like, also, I, I think one of the magical things about this film that I think is very important to touch on is how excellent of a film it is at really showing these little things that scare us all. You know, like the, the stuff between Robbie and the tree and the clown, or, you know, the, the fear that parents had about their kids and television you know, there's so many things that like growing up, like watching this movie growing, like looking back, growing up, like these were things that, you know, my parents were scared of. I would, you know, I was constantly told that I would go blind if I watched TV, uh, you know, or, you know, if I watch the wrong thing, I'm obviously going to, you know, shoot up a school or blow something up. Or, I mean, mm-hmm. but the, not even just that, but like the stuff, like I said, with Robbie and the tree or the clown, it's really good at showing how as a child, these little minute things are huge. You know, like if I saw a shadow on the wall when I was a kid, like, dude, my life was over, you know? And Poltergeist is such a good movie at kind of having that youthful naivety, you know, that comes with like being afraid. I also wanted to point out uh, Robbie, Robbie Freeling. He's not, he's not the main uh, focus in the movie, but he's, his character, you're right. They, they do a great job of fleshing out the characters, especially when his father is Steve Freeling and he is a little bit distant. Um, You hear Steve say that Robbie's sleeping with them now, which I think is very sweet. It's a sweet moment for both of them. But also when Carol Ann first goes missing, um, 
Robbie says that if he gets killed, he could go visit her and show her how to get back here. I mean, that's a sweet little boy who is in touch with his feelings that, you know, is different from his dad. And I think that that's also a piece of the 80s and 90s that happened. I mean, Jerry, you're an example of that, right? You know, where you come from a place that the men aren't as emotional as you mentioned and you become a little bit more so. Oh, totally. I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously not spending too much time on myself when we could be talking about poltergeists, but yeah, totally. <laughs> like I grew up, I grew up with a dad who, I mean, all he was, all he enjoyed was sports. You know, uh, my dad managed a motel and we had a little house built onto it for many years. And so basically whenever my dad wasn't checking someone into a room, he was on, you know, watching ESPN. You know, if I had questions about life or, you know, relationships, you know, I didn't have anyone to talk to. But in in not having this, like anyone to talk to, I kind of found empathy myself. I found compassion myself. You know, I found art myself. And I feel like Robbie is a character just like that. Robbie's a character that, like you said, in spite of his dad or despite his dad not having those qualities, I mean, he's such an empathetic kid and he's so like he's so caring you know and i i robbie's always been my favorite character in the first film i think we're being a little bit hard on steve freeling as a character <laughs> and I, I, no, I, I agree too i see he's I, a little I softer actually, than we than mm-hmm. we give him credit for he's he's built as a tough guy but i do think i mean obviously in poltergeist too you see a lot more of this but yeah. he's he's he is. He does get more. He does deserve more credit than we than we give him. You're right, Mike. I also think that like, but I don't see that as Steve's fault. That's the thing. Like, I don't see him as a bad character or that he's like completely distant and he doesn't. You know, he's not a good person. I think he's a great person. I just think that those old school values were forced sure. upon that on that character and the film the arc of the film is him letting go of that and being mm-hmm. a, an actual father so i mean what i think steve goes through in poltergeist is the best character arc in the movie mm-hmm. uh, i mean if you really think about it joe beth williams character i mean she's kind of the same person mm-hmm. you know i mean she grows she becomes a better parent but she's ultimately that same spiritual person i think steve is the character that has mo- like the most growth and and goes through so much in the movie, and he, by the end of the movie, he becomes, I think, the opposite of what he started as. Yeah, I Pardon? guess I, I guess I had a different interpretation of Steve than than any of you guys did. I mean, what I, I, I didn't see so much the workaholic. What I saw was him, you know, laying in bed with Robbie, saying, you know, count the time yes. between the lightning and right. the thunder. And, that's true. you know, that's that's what I remember. I remember and I remember the, you know, the before after before after thing, you know, that where he's messing around with with his wife and, you know, and just and just sort of those silly moments. That's that's the stuff that I think of when I think of Steve's character in the movie more than anything. I And even the even the scene where he is uh, at his job and he's um, selling the house he comes across to me as not, you know, like a slick, um, typical salesman that we see in most movies. He seems like someone who actually kind of, kind of cares about giving mm-hmm. these people something good. You know, it'll help him, of course, too. But he he doesn't. He's not as sort of that oily, gross sort of salesman you see in so many movies. And I think he's you know, very honest about 
the homes too. Like he has that little joke. He's like, the grass is always greener on all the sides. Like he's telling them like, look, what you're buying into here is you're buying into this sense of sameness. And if that brings you comfort, that's great then. I agree with you, Brian. I think that moment where he's in bed with uh, Joe Beth and, excuse me, uh, Robbie comes in and is really frightened you know, there's not, I think, like an, a, a lesser dad, one that doesn't have that empathy or that warmth, would have been like, just go to bed at that point. Like, because, you know, you would have been thinking with your other brain at that point. Um, <laughs> but he, you know, puts him on his back, carries him in, tucks him in, and has that moment with him where he teaches his son how to become less afraid from what's going going on in the world when it's really scary outside. How do you talk yourself through it? Um, I also really like that the movie allowed Steve to not have to be the Dudley Do-Right hero, that he re- recognizes that when it's time to get Carol Ann, that it's really going to be Diane's job, that she has the strength she has the will, like she has the fortitude. He, he trusts her to get it done. And that's a really hard thing to let go of. Like, I know that as a dad, there are times where I'm like, this is my job. Like, this is my role. I am supposed to be do this. And I struggle with that kind of gender expectation and that that role expectation sometimes as much as. I like to think of myself as like a progressive person, you know, that's innate in me as well. No, totally. I, I, th- I think that that moment uh, is so important to the film because that is the moment that Steve just learns to let go, you know, and, and trust that he doesn't know how to fix it this time. And that his wife is like you said, the, the one with, you know, the strength, you know, uh, Steve thinks that he's the rock of the family, and I don't even mean that as an insult. You know, he thinks that he is the, uh, you know, the anchor of the family, but his wife is the one, you know, and and I'm not speaking like a Christianity kind of religion thing, but his wife is the one that is so spiritually in tuned with their family. It's 100 percent, you know, the wife that saves Carol Ann, and I think that that moment where Steve lets go – you know, he 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 knows to let go, and he lets her do that. I think it's such an important part of the movie, and I think that that speaks on the character. You know, like a little bit ago when I was talking about Steve, you know, I maybe I misworded it a little bit. I don't think that he's like a, an alpha male kind of tough guy character. I think what he is is somebody who was who maybe had those old conservative kind of traditional father role uh, things put into him, but. Throughout the film, he I think he's combating that because I think deep down he is a really good person, and it it it's illustrated in those scenes between him and the kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. I think, I mean, I think what Steve is is a father of the '80s. I mean, they were raised by a different generation, and they were trying their best. And I don't, I don't mean every father, but you know, the fathers of the children I grew up with, and my own dad, um, you know, did his best, went to work every day, but was always like just. For me, my dad was always there. Um, he wasn't. Um, he wasn't. You know, the spiritual one either. And he wasn't the one that was that you go to talk to about. You know, uh, I got trapped by a demon again. But he is. He was there when you needed him. And I think that that's a lot of what Steve does too. And I think that that a lot of that pulls down into Robbie. And 
man, the family dynamic in this movie is so genuine. Talk to me a little bit more about that. What is it about the family dynamic, Frank, that appeals to you in particular? I would love to hear a little bit more. I mean, well, for me, it just felt so real when I watched it as a kid. Um, so my mom was not a lot like Diane. My mom was very um, uh, logical. Uh, but so as a kid, I have to tell you that Diane's reaction to, um, you know, the kitchen table moving or Carol Ann moving and being pulled, that scared the shit out of me as a kid. I'm like, a mom should not be cool with this. So I was terrified to watch this. And I'm like, moms need to protect you. And like, I, I just remember like, this is not how my mom would act. But other than that, I mean, Steve very much feels like my dad who, who, you know, did what he did. And if there was something in front of him, he knew how to fix it. But if I went to him with, you know, a broken heart, he'd be like, go talk to your mother. Um, and then my brother too, I, I grew up in a very nuclear family. I mean, we were poor as fuck, but like it, there was the four of us and that was that. And I saw a lot of that in this movie. Um, you know, especially since Dana was never around. So, (laughs) well, it's, it's funny that whole, like, you know, it needing to talk to your dad about something and, you know, go talk to your mother. Like, it's funny how like a lot of our dads were like that. Anytime I would ask my dad about these like big important issues or, you know, like these, these very like either like mental health issues that I would have or anything else, my dad's response would always be like, well, I, I don't know what to tell you. You know, like, well, I can't help that. And it's like, yeah, okay, okay cool, cool. I have to say, though, as things went on, I mean, as you know, not to make not to sidetrack too much, but, you know, my dad was a lot like that as a kid. But recently, I mean, I was going through some health things and um, I was home one day and I called him. He was at work and um, I was just I was in a bad state. And um, I'm like, Dad, like, can you come over after work? And he said, sure. And um, he hangs up. But literally five minutes later, he's knocking on my door just to make sure that I'm OK. Like, mm-hmm. it's a it's a very big shift. And I think that I think that, Brian, you're right in being more fair to Steve and that he he would also have a shift like that because he's not, you know, this this he's not made of stone. Right. So I think that I think that that's a good observation, Brian. I do think and we've touched on her very briefly. And I think she deserves a lot more discussion. Is uh, Joe Beth Williams is Diane Freeling? Oh my because god! Because I feel like she really owns this movie. Um, in term, and I think like you had said, Jerry, like her arc doesn't have quite as wide of a swing of an arc as uh, Steve does overall. But I think she's consistently the most fascinating character in this movie um, from her willingness to believe what seems unbelievable from the get-go like she is the one who even before she sees anything um is asking carol ann you know what did you mean when you were talking about the tv people what did you mean like she has this inkling like when she sees i think it's it's the dog buster i can't remember i can't remember the dogs is it i I feel like every dog every dog in the 80s movies was was every golden retriever is (laughs) it's like every irish person in boston is either named fitzy or sully uh you know (laughs) what i mean so it's been so this is buster um when the dog hops on the bed and is just staring at that little spot in the wall, like mom knows something is up from the get go and she's open to all possibilities. Well, that, and like, you know, not to sidetrack a lot, uh, a little but going back to them smoking pot. And it's not that just I'm obsessed with, obsessed with talking about that, but a scene just popped in my head right now. And maybe we could talk about that a little bit. Uh, the scene where Diane's, 
kind of questioning Caroline about, you know, the previous night when she said they're here. Do you guys remember that whole back and forth where she's questioning her about it? And she's like, well, you know, what, what do you mean? And Caroline's like, oh, the TV people. And Robbie says, uh, she's stoned. And then the sister, <laughs> sister goes, oh, well, what do you know about that? And then Robbie said, more than you, ask dad. So Steve smokes out with Robbie. <laughs> I, like, that just popped back into my head. Like, that is such a trip. So maybe I am giving Steve too much, you know, crap. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Well, to me, I, I guess I, I know. I, I guess I, I, I was sort of surprised to see a dad character in a movie that wasn't that felt real to me. Mm-hmm. You know, because so often I, I feel like dad characters are stupid, or they don't care, or something like that. And, you know, my dad is probably, I mean, minus the pot thing, probably more like Steve. His name is even Steve. And I didn't even, that didn't even dawn on me till this very moment. Um, I, I kind of, I kind of see, you know, someone who's, who's trying their best to, to fulfill the role that they're supposed to fulfill, but also be a good dad. I think he really is trying to be a good dad. I don't know if he knows how, but who does? That's the thing. I, and that well, felt also, real to me. That felt very real to me. Remember um, when Diane says, reach back to when you had an open mind? Like, I wonder what pre-Reagan Steve was like, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I get the sense yeah, that they were both hippies. I, I get the sense that, you know, the fact that they're they're hanging out in bed. I mean, they they in the 60s, they were on the protest line. I have no doubt yeah. about mm-hmm. that. Yeah. I don't think it's any great secret that most of your 19 you know your baby boomers basically most of your 1960s radicals that were free love and burning bras and like let's roll around at woodstock went very much on to like you know let's you know tune in drop out let's let's actually get with the system now yeah i mean a couple years later you're going to have that famous quote in the breakfast club you know when you grow old your heart dies uh, and I think that is a line that is very much aimed at the parents' generation of people that, you know, we're all about loving one another and all about making this big change. But then as soon as it came time to, like, really draw a paycheck, then it's like, ooh, I want to get mine now. And it became, I would say, to be quite honest, like, the Steve generation is probably the most selfish generation that we've come across and there's also that idea that a lot of these people that were kind of radicals, I mean, like you're saying, uh, or you know, that's what I, I'm taking, is that you know they did change as they got older, you know. And I have no idea why. I'll probably be the only person in history that will ever uh, associate Poltergeist with the band Against Me. But uh, I mean, there there is that really great Against Me song. Uh, you know, I was a teenage anarchist, all about mm-hmm. someone that had these ideas. And was so passionate about sticking it to the man and all this stuff. And as they got older, they kind of realized that that was just bullshit, too. Right. I was a teenage anarchist with the politics into convenience. It's 
you know, and I think that that's maybe what Steve kind of did. You know, he probably was, you know, like protesting as a young person. And he probably, you know, got to the point where he's like, I have a family. I'm buckling down. And through that, his belief system changed. But I think even going back to what Brian was saying, uh, I think the characters are so relatable because they feel real. Even the dialogue for, for the kids. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. as anyone with any parent can, can you know, agree with – my kids say the weirdest shit. Like if, if, we, if I'm going through like something really heavy and my kids hear it and they're trying to help me solve it, they'll say like completely ridiculous things. That's like not even possible, you know, with when the, pul- when the, the supernatural stuff starts happening in the movie. I mean, I remember one scene where Robbie was talking about how he, he got beat up one time by three kids and they took his lunch money. You know, maybe they got hit by a truck and they're upstairs right now. Like that's a, that's not a joke. That's Robbie being a kid trying to explain something to his parents and himself, Mm -hmm. you know? And I I think that that is relatable. I think the stuff with Steve is relatable. I think the stuff with Diane is very relatable because I mean, yeah, she doesn't have as big of an arc as uh, Steve does maybe, but that's only because she is solid. I think from the beginning, you know, Mm -hmm. she's very in tune with who she is. You know, and I think that being in tune with who she is is what saves Carol Ann. Mm-hmm. I think there's one of the best moments of just pure joy when she turns around and sees the chairs stacked up, and they the, basically the spirits kind of eventually they just reveal themselves to her by doing something so dramatic. And it's a moment that, if I remember correctly, it's kind of mirrored in. Paranormal Activity 3, if I remember correctly. I know it's done in one of those movies. It's just been a long time since I watched them. Instead of being played as a scare, it's being played as a moment for her to really indulge her inner child at that point. No, I I agree 100%. That's exactly what I took from it, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yeah, yeah, definitely. So you go right from that to her basically playing human bowling at that point on the kitchen floor. Like she has this whole setup. She, you know, we put the chairs here. And then like to your point, Veronica, when her husband comes home, like she can't wait to show him this thing. And he is scared of it. Like this basically, this isn't right. This is not the way the world is supposed to work where she is open to whatever possibility this could bring to her. Right. Like this happens. I'm going to lean into it where he's like, nah, fuck that. Like I'm out of (laughs) here. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what a parent should do is not lean into stuff like that. So that again, as a kid, I just, and, and through the whole movie, she was just so open to receiving everything. I mean, when she is working with, um, the spirit guide later and says she feels her and she felt her move through her. And it's like, Really? I, even as a kid, I'm like, lady, no, like, I don't believe that. But she did. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, that optimism carried her through. Mm-hmm. Let me ask a question before we, I, we get into the kind of the not the ghost busting characters overall. Um, but we've talked a lot about like the family dynamics overall. We've kind of tiptoed around it. Why do you think this movie remains like even tonight with my nine-year-old little girl? Why does this movie remain so scary for children in particular? I Jer- yeah, oh, go, go, ahead. Go, ahead. go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say, I, I think the reason that it 
does still affect people in that way. It kind of goes back to what I was saying. But I mean specifically chill. I don't mean to cut you off, but I mean particularly why does this movie resonate with children so much? That's why. That's that's 100% why. Because as a kid, the movies that scared me were the movies that felt like they were playing to my fears. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what Poltergeist does for children especially. As an adult, I mean I watch it and I'm like this is funny. You know, this is great. I enjoy this. As a kid, it scared the hell out of me because of that. These were my fears. You know, I wasn't afraid of clowns, but I was afraid of something similar, you know, in a different – I was afraid of what was in the dark. I was afraid of specific things, and I think Poltergeist is so good at taking those childhood fears and really just really just hitting the ground running. And I think that's exactly why it scares mm-hmm. kids because as kids – like I said, the smallest little scare means the world to you. You know, it's the end of the world in your head. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I see I see a picture of John Wayne Gacy on the cover of a paperback novel once, and I didn't sleep for almost a week. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, not because I'm afraid of clowns, but just because these smallest, these small little things, like I said, are catastrophically huge for kids. And Poltergeist is perfect at kind of illustrating that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean. Robbie's afraid of the tree. So what happens? The tree fucking eats him. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that is a perfect example, I think. Mm. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is it fed into kids' fears, like exactly with the tree. Um, and, and Caroline is so much like her mother. Like she's not afraid of the TV fuzz mm. or who's in the TV. She's just like, yeah, let's roll with this. And Robbie's like, nah. So, I mean, there is the mirroring of the parents there too, but um, aside from that, I was going to say before, Jerry just hit the nail on the head with the small details. It's the small things. There are the big scares, right? Like the, 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 the bodies coming up through the ground, like the, the skeletons coming up, but, and also the face feeling their face peeling off, you know, babies first yeah, Cronenberg, yeah. but it was, <laughs> it's, it's just, I, yeah, Jerry nailed it. it. It was the small things that stuck in my head. Like I said, it wasn't the fact that for me, Robbie got pulled in by the tree, but it was just the the terror on his face when he's covered in mud and blood. And I'm just sitting there as a kid taking that in. And I'm like, he's my age. Like, I can't see a kid like this go through this. That ends. I mean, even speaking on like behind the scenes, technical stuff. Uh, and I'm I'm genuinely not trying to just plug stuff that I've done. Uh, because I suck at promoting myself, but, uh, I, in the most recent issue of screen magazine, I actually interviewed, uh, Oliver Robbins about poltergeist one and two. Uh, and we talked about the tree scene and, uh, I can't remember how much made it into the, the magazine because the actual interview was a lot longer, but he talked about the experience was so much fun how, you know, he just got to like, it's basically like playtime. Like, let's act as scared as we can. Like, this thing's going to kill me and my family. I'm so excited to get in there. And I think that that shows in the movie. And that also helps bring that kind of realism to a movie that is, isn't realistic. You know, like, I, I think Oliver Robbins gives such a genuine performance that that fun that he had making the movie comes across as in his, as in his performance of being very scared. So, I mean, as a kid, it was easy to kind of latch on to that. Part of the reason the movie works so well and why I think it remains very scary for young kids, the performance of Robbie in this movie, the performance of Heather O'Rourke in this movie, they're both so good. They really oh, are. Um, yeah. Oliver Robbins in particular, I think, 
was a terrific uh, young child actor here overall. I mean, you really feel his terror in this movie overall. And you, as a kid, I think you, when you see another kid scared like that, even if you're not afraid of clowns or thunderstorms or scary trees, you, you cannot help but feel what this kid feels at that point because kids feel things so intensely, especially for other children, that even if those things aren't necessarily your fears growing up as a kid, you take on those fears at that point in that moment in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I absolutely love what they give what they give them, what, what they uh, give to the performance overall. And, you know, it's, I think it's easy to forget really how little Heather O'Rourke is in this movie. She pretty much disappears 20, 30 minutes into the movie and then comes back for the last 15 or so minutes overall. Um, I think that, Oh no, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but she's such this like sweet cherubic, wonderful little girl that like she you're just you know and it's, again you have like the big tagline from this movie you know they're here uh delivered with just this like really manic glee that has just that right hint of like this is kind of making my stomach hurt a little bit that it's just it's it's really memorable i think that when when you know you say that she's barely in the movie i think that that's a good thing and i think it's a good thing because her performance when she is in the movie is so good that we forget mm. that we forget how little she's in the movie because she's left such an impression with the, the little amount of time that she is in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I think that that kind of speaks on what you're saying that, you know, Heather work is so good in the movie. Oliver Robbins is so good. I mean, it's one of the rare family and I hate to say family movies. Cause I mean, I, I don't really think it's a family movie, but I mean, it's lumped into that, but I think it's a perfect example of a movie with, a family dynamic where the kids, the performance of the the kid actors are just as impressive as the adult ones. Also though, like I, I think that it would be cool to kind of talk about uh, Dominique Dunn's performance. Okay. Uh, Because she's so, she doesn't have as much uh, to work with as everyone else, but she really captures that really bratty older sister thing. You know, like she does it so well. We've all either had, that older sister or have known people like that, you know, that kind of scoff at their siblings, you know, kind of closer to the mom than the dad, you know, has, kind of has nothing but kind of sarcasm to say. And I, I think that I really wish, you know, I, I, I know we're maybe not getting into the whole curse thing, but, uh, or her death, but I really wish that she had, you know, not been murdered, obviously, but mm-hmm. she had been in the second film lived to be in the second film. Cause I feel like, with the theme of the second film where all the females in the family have kind of psychic abilities or telepathic right. abilities or whatever it is, I think that that character would have been explored even more or just as much – had just as much of an arc as everyone mm-hmm. else did in the first film. And I think there's like something like – her character in particular, there's something to be said about this kind of teenage character that is – just about to like strike out on her own and her parents trust her enough to kind of like, all right, go and do your own thing. Like we can rely on you to keep yourself safe overall. And she's almost at the point where she's over her family and she's over the two young kids. And she really wants to strike out on her own. And like the last thing in the world that she really needs is this, you know, <laughs> dis- is what? 
<laughs> the last thing she needs right now in her life is a ghost. Yes. It's basically, yeah, it's like <laughs> these like fucking ghosts that come and like fuck everything up for them. No, it's it, like, can you imagine being that teenage, like mm-hmm. just that teenager in general? Like, man, I don't want to be around my family. I want to, I want to go out and do my own thing. I want to hang out with my friends. I want, you know, I want to be in a relationship. Oh, no. So, you know, it, it's kind of like the Rachel in Halloween four thing. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I can't go out and do my thing because I have to babysit Jamie. But mm-hmm. with this character, it's like, no, I can't do my thing because my little sister just got abducted by by Ghost. ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, in, in terms of babysitting, one of the things we touched about television a little bit in this movie overall. And I think what's really interesting is like, especially in that first act of the movie, there is not a moment where a television is not on in the Freeling household. Mm-hmm. Veronica, to your point, the movie begins with Steve slumped in front of the TV while the Star Spangled Banner plays, and then Carol Ann makes her way downstairs. But even at breakfast, like nobody is watching television while they're having breakfast, but it's on in the background overall. Like it's just a presence that is there. When Steve and excuse me, when Steve and Diane are kind of having their cute little powwow in bed together, the TV is on in the background. Like, it's such a present thing. Uh, and there's that little funny moment where when Carol Ann is watching the snowy television, Mom is like, oh, you know, that's no good for you overall here. Watch something, you know, that that's just, that's going to rot your brain. And mm-hmm. then she turns on this, like, super violent war movie and yeah. doesn't even think for a moment, like, what is my kid actually consuming right now? Right. You know what? It's funny that, that that you speak on that scene because I remember something from my childhood really quick. I remember when uh, I think it was Sean, not Sean Lennon, one of the Lennons uh, kind of formed this thing with Yoko Ono and a bunch of other people that give peace a chance. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. That video where everyone was talking about peace and stuff. And I remember my dad, uh, you know, I was watching that. And my dad wanted me to turn it. He's like, oh, you don't need that stuff in your head. And he turned it. And it was like, I think the latest thing on like the Gulf War at the time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I remember that. It's exactly yeah. what, uh-huh. what Poltergeist did. You know, like, no, no, TV's going to rot your brain. And then mm-hmm. uh, here's war. You know, here's here's everything really wrong mm-hmm. with the world instead of this other stuff. But even talking about the TV constantly being on, I mean, during that time in the 80s, I mean, I don't know about you guys. But that was my existence because my dad didn't know how to be a dad. I mean, in a lot of ways, I was raised by films and television, you know, like that's where I learned most things. I never had that birds and the bees talk with my dad. I learned that from movies, to be honest. Mm -hmm. You learned it from Friday the 13th, part four, basically (laughs) everything you needed to learn. You know, I watched watched New Beginning. I watched Friday the 13th, five. It's like, oh, I guess that's what that is. (laughs) (laughs) It's sad. That's sad and and to be honest, like it's funny, but at the same time, like that's really pathetic that so yeah. many of us had to learn that stuff in the right. you know because our parents didn't know how to have those talks. I mean, to this day, like you said, you watch Friday the Thirteenth. I cannot, I just can't maintain an erection unless someone gets stabbed in the head. It's just all the movies that I. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sorry, you know. I, I mean, I my husband why. has to wear his Freddy glove, you know, just to. <laughs> <laughs> just to get in there. <laughs> yeah, I gotta tell you though, guys, that that talk is still hard to have, okay? Because I had to have it with my son last night. Mm-hmm. Last night, Brian. Last last night, I had to tell explain. More. I had to explain to him what a wet dream was. Mm-hmm. 
so that that was that was uh, interesting. And because and because my wife was my wife was like, I'm not telling him; it's your job. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you're right; it is. So we we uh, we had a conversation, and and he thought it was funny, and you know, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, but it's it's part of life, you know. You know, I wonder though; it feels like Steve really would have been okay having that conversation with I Robbie when so. they're sitting there smoking pot together. I like, think so, definitely. Yeah, yeah like, here. Here, Robbie, have a have a drag, and let's uh, and let's let's, let's talk. talk. Let's talk. Let's talk about why we changed your sheets last night, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> Robbie's kind of a sarcastic kid in general. I can imagine Robbie Freeling being high. You know, <laughs> he would be the strange character from Cabin in the Woods. He would grow up to be Franz. Uh, I think it's Fran Kranz's character from oh, Cabin in the Woods. That's basically who Robbie Freeling. Grows up to be <laughs> if he's getting stoned with dad at age eight, basically. Right. It's funny. My our daughter does not like. She is not a very physically affectionate person. Um, last week at fencing, she was having a little bit of a struggle getting her helmet, and she was getting really anxious and upset. And I went to like kiss her on the head to let her know that like, it's okay. And she like reacted. Like I was trying to like zap her with a cattle prod. Um, like she was, so when we were having dinner last night and you know, she was saying like, why do adults always want to have sex all the time? Like you and mom don't. And I'm like, sure we do. Like, and then she got really upset. She was like, I'm thinking of you in a totally different light now. Like, it's like, honey, I don't know what to tell you. Like, people like to do that kind of thing. So it is How funny. How old like, is she? She's nine. Can you imagine being a nine-year-old, though, and imagining your parents naked just in general? I don't have and to imagine. They. I'm 39, and I don't imagine my yeah. parents naked. Yeah. <laughs> there were two really funny jokes there that got told over each other, <laughs> fellas. But, yeah, I mean, that's that's – yeah, that's a nice. But I think it's also really unhealthy as a parent to be like, no, parents don't do that. And no, I think like for sure. And it also mm-hmm. probably means if the parents say that they don't do it, like eh, probably not healthy because my parents definitely did not. They got divorced not long after mm-hmm. I was nine. But yeah, I mean, as a nine year old, if I knew my parents were in love, I still would not want to think about them rolling right. around on top of each other. I mean, other. we're not saying, like, go into the bottom drawer on mom's nightstand and we'll show you the props that we use. Like, we're not doing <laughs> that, you know? Um, so, you know, it's you know, it's not like we're giving, like, visual demonstrations, but I do think, you know, and I do think it's important to tell your children, like, yeah, you know, moms and dads or moms and moms or dads and dads or whatever. Um love one another and they, you know, like they can be affectionate with one another, you know, like the other day, um, you know, my wife grabbed my boob and I yelled, you know, boobs. And, you know, my daughter was like, what the hell is wrong with you? people?" My wife grabbed my boob. She did, you know, <laughs> because I'm always grabbing hers. Like they're running. The longest joke we have is, and I'm sorry to detract this no, podcast now, but There was one time when my wife and I were dating very early on and, um, I, you know, I, and I, I grabbed her a little rough by the breast and she says, hon, you have to excite them a little bit. So I looked at them both and yelled, we're going to Disney world. And she was like, that is not how it works. So 
Yeah, I think we lost Jerry. I think Jerry's like, fuck off, Mike. So. Oh, no, no. I'm just I'm here for the ride. I'm listening to it. Uh, I think that, you know, we've talked a lot about the family. Mm-hmm. But I think that it would be the biggest disservice to this batshit insane movie if mm-hmm. we don't talk about one of the most overacted but brilliant performances. Aw, aw, Carol Ann. Gina is like a character. I mean, she she kind of became like, oh, it's 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 like uh, Lynn Shay's character in Insidious, you know, a, kind of a minor character in the first movie, but after a while, she just kind of becomes the series. Mm-hmm. And it's like I can't watch this movie without laughing every single time Zelda Rubenstein opens her mouth. Wonderful, she's you know, wonderful. Like the, part, the part where Steve's like, "No, I thought you said Tangina was an extraordinary," and she's like, "I am." I am. <laughs> <laughs> like I love it, and it, it adds like it's supposed to be serious, and I get it, but at the same time, it adds such a just a light spirited, like mm-hmm. just light hearted, just fun like vibe to the movie. And I, I just, I love that character with a passion. She's a great character. She's such a bizarre character too, because she's not meant to be funny all the time, but sometimes she is because, you know, when she's saying you can't choose between life and death, but then you also get like, you know, I'm going in after her and Oh, you're right. You go like, she's, she's got like these, uh, she's so memorable that I had forgotten. She was only in the movie for what? 15 Ugh. minutes max. Mm-hmm. I mean, she gets less screen time than Heather O'Rourke, but she is forefront of my mind when I think about this movie. She's like Harvey Keitel's character of the wolf in Pulp Fiction. She's right. the, oh. you know, she's yeah, the fixer in a lot of ways, yeah. right? I mean, uh-huh. it's she one of is uh, the main character in Silent Night, Deadly Night 2. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that as an insult. I mean that as a compliment. Uh, there's a really great commentary that uh, – AJ Bowen and, and Rob Galuza recorded for Icons of Fright back mm-hmm. in the day, just like a fan commentary. And, you know, we posted, it was so great. And AJ said something about the actor from Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 that, that I just, I believe the same thing about Zelda Rubenstein in this movie. Uh, that in Silent Night, Deadly Night 2, that actor gives 100% every mm-hmm. single frame he's in. You could hate the movie, but you cannot deny that. Mm-hmm. Zelda Rubenstein does the same thing too. Like, the way that she delivers even the most mundane lines. Oh my like, God. I like it. There's that one scene. She's like, now clear your minds. I know what scares you. It has from the very <laughs> beginning. Don't give it any help. It knows too much already. Like that is such a throwaway, stupid line. But she loves it. She dove you know right I mean? in. 
<laughs> also, when she's like, will you do anything I ask, even if it comes contrary to your beliefs as a human being as a, and as a Christian? Like, I turned to my husband and said, those are our wedding vows. Like, it's amazing. It's it, She's so fun. She's so fun. Her delivery mm-hmm. is so fun. And, uh, they, I, I mean, I don't – was she in anything else? I don't know. Yeah, she was in uh, this really great movie called Anguish. Uh, uh-huh. And uh, – uh, behind the mask. She's I got mean, a I, great little scene in behind the mask. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. She went on to have, I would say like a pretty solid career as a character actor, actress. And actually she's in, I've never watched the show, but from 92 to 94, she's in 44 episodes of a show called picket fences. Oh, wow. I, I vaguely I, remember she plays, my, uh, my parents, the character of Jamie Whedon. Um, everyone's parents watched it. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> was it the show on CBS? Because like, to me, that would be so, like yeah. the perfect, like Had CBS. Yeah. Show. I, I, but I mean, yeah, she yeah. has about 50 something credits to her yeah. name. Crazy. here. Like, Even behind the scenes though, like, you know, like briefly touching back on the, like the, who directed it thing. I remember when they interviewed her, she's like, Toby couldn't even direct traffic. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I remember like James Karen being so pissed off about that. Like at that Q&A, he was just like, oh, she laid into him. I don't know why. He was nice to her. And, like, wait, it, it's just, uh, who laid, wait, who was pissed? Who? At James what Karen? Okay. James Karen. Uh, I mean, he's been one of the, him and Oliver Robbins have been like the two people that were like a hundred percent, like. Fuck no, we were on the set. Toby directed this movie. And he was pissed off at the Q&A for the 25th anniversary. Uh, uh, and he, he was like, yeah, she laid into him. I don't know why. He was nice to her. <laughs> <laughs> she just had a, a, a big personality, like, like on screen and off screen. And I think that being that kind of like, you know, I don't know where she's from, but I mean, from her accent, I'm, I'm taking it somewhere Southern. But just mm-hmm. kind of had that kind of like Southern kind of like twang. It adds, It's so weird because that no one in that entire movie is like that then all of a sudden you know you have this like this this psychic that comes in with her with her weird glasses and like that southern thing and she kind of like almost floats in the way she moves and that crazy like crazy beehive hairdo yeah oh, i mean yeah interesting characters of all time even if you're not a big fan of the movie you can't deny that so and i, I only I'm sorry. You, I thought you were talking. You go no, ahead. No, 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 nothing important. I was going to say that uh, one of the things I think that helps bring out her performance and every other person's performance is the amazing, completely underappreciated score. Mm-hmm. I think Poltergeist has one of the best scores of all time, mm-hmm. and it helps elevate so many scenes, and it helps elevate so many performances from being great to even like legendary. I think mm-hmm. you know, and it's I, a combination it's, of like music. And like, you know, what's going on? One thing on, on, on Zelda Rubenstein, I think part of like where some of that come, that over the topness comes from overall is, I mean, she was four foot three. And there is a joke that's made at her expense in the movie when Steve is like, oh, what side of the rainbow are we going to be working on, you know, working from today? Um, so there's a couple quotes from her when she talks about like being a little person in movies. She talks about the negative portrayals of little people in movies where she's like, you know, it's absolutely despicable. You're not an actor. If you're just a person that fits in a cute costume, you're a prop. And I think like part of that over the top nature of that performance that you see is her wanting to be seen as a real character and not just this cute little person prop. She goes on to say that little people are societally 
handicapped. They have about two minutes to present themselves as equals, and if they don't take advantage of that chance, then people fall back on the common assumption that less is less. So I, I think that's really interesting. I think part of where you see that kind of like bombasticness to her performance is her kind of like saying, look, if I'm not large in my physical stature, you're certainly going to remember me uh, when I'm on the screen. That kind of uh, unfair kind of judging when it comes to, uh, you know, a little person and kind of what the, how they're portrayed in films. You know, I am so stoked that even now you're seeing uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, little people, uh, you know, I don't know the proper terminology. So if I'm not saying it correctly, I apologize. But, uh, you know, even recently, uh, Poncho Moeller was in three from hell, which I mean, some people hated. I love, I loved Mm -hmm. with the passion. And I think that he was the best character in that whole damn movie. And his character had really like very much, like very little to do with his size. You know, like I, I loved that, the, the, I mean, we're not going to turn this into Rob Zombie stuff, but I love that Zombie didn't rely on that as like a gimmick and let him just be an actor, which he is, you know? And I think Zelda Rubenstein, Zelda Rubenstein really did that with Poltergeist. Mm-hmm. She never comes off as like, it's, it's not a joke, you know, it's not a gimmick, you know? And I, I, she's so good that she kind of breaks that kind of stigma that goes with a lot of that stuff, that very like just toxic you know, thing that she's talking about. Getting back to your point about Jerry Goldsmith, I think along with John Williams, I think probably two of the more decorated composers in modern Hollywood history. Um, And I know it's been said that, you know, although like Williams gets a lot of the public accolades overall, that people that were in the know that really understand music would, would give a slight nod overall to Goldsmith in terms of his compositions overall. One of the things when you look at back at his work, whether it's from Star Trek, Patton, the Omen, uh, Alien, um, his Sometimes I love John Williams. I mean, he's my favorite composer. I, I my life would be different without his work in my life overall. And I, Brian, I would love to hear your perspective as a musician. Um, sometimes Williams' work tends to overwhelm the film overall. It I kind agree. Of not detracts from the movie, but it almost takes it over overall. He he does he Williams and I adore Williams. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not I'm not trying to disparage him at all but um his, the biggest criticism i hear about williams is that he tells us how to feel mm-hmm. so so often and i think that is is a just criticism uh in some ways um in certain movies more than others um goldsmith doesn't do that so much you know i think he he um sometimes he tries to like one of the things i noticed watching it this time around the scene where uh, Robbie is approaching the clown and he's freaked out about it. He's going to throw the, the jacket over its head. The music in that sequence is, is really different than you would expect. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's nothing creepy about it. It's almost, it's almost like a little bit of a, of a, of a, of a children's tune being played during that. And I thought that was a really interesting choice. And um, that's the kind of thing you could get from Goldsmith. I mean, apparently, you know, like Alien, he is not fond of the opening credit sequence because they made him do this, this uh, what he felt very typical 
sequence, you know, mysterious and all this stuff. And he actually, I guess, wrote a very beautiful theme for that opening. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so he he tends to want to do what the the most unexpected thing uh, is tends to be what he is drawn to do. And I, I think he's a really interesting composer. He's 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 uh, he's wonderful, and I, I think he deserves. He deserves as many accolades as, as he gets, in my well, opinion. What's funny, what's funny is that year, Goldsmith lost the Oscar for Best Original Score to John Williams for E.T. E. E. For, for E.T. Well, E.T. is a pretty magnificent score, oh, I have great. to say. I actually think E.T. is John Williams' best score, uh, in my opinion. And that's not a that's not a that's not the most popular opinion. A lot of people would give it to Star Wars or to... Uh, um, uh, I just lost it. <laughs> I just lost the one I was going to say that that uh, that that uh, that tends that to be the one movie? that people say. Huh? <laughs> that, that shark movie? Shark no. Movie. <laughs> the Meg? Are we talking about the Meg? The, the Meg? Yeah, <laughs> sure. I, 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 but I, I think I think uh, ET is probably what I think his his uh, greatest score. I mean, some may say Schindler's List, which is a pretty damn great score mm-hmm. too. But um, getting off subject a little bit, but. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think um, yeah, that's a that's a tough choice though. I mean, mm-hmm. the this this score for Poltergeist, that ending, uh, I'm I'm hearing the, the 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 children's voices, yeah, that that sing over the end of the movie, just that la 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 la, is it's just so perfect. I mean, that's because it really is about the children are so central to that movie. That um, having those voices as, you know, just infused all the way into the very DNA of the film in the music in that way, I, I think is is really a a beautiful choice to make mm-hmm. as a, as a composer. You know, I I think when talking about kind of the lasting impact of Poltergeist, you know, a lot of my feelings of it on it, like we I kind of already went over, but I do feel like there's so much. Uh, uh, there's so much magic in the in this movie, uh, mm-hmm. and it's such a silly word to throw. I, I I get that, but there really is everything from like performances to the writing to uh, Toby's direction. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, like there's there's so much to love, and I think that, and we'll definitely get in this when we tackle the remake. But mm-hmm. I feel like that's where the remake went wrong, is that there's none of it in that. Sure, you know, you, you don't care for the characters. You don't get that vibe you don't feel like they're a real family you feel like they're actors playing a family mm-hmm. whereas poltergeist i could buy that craig t nelson and joe beth williams would be married with those kids mm-hmm. because their performances are that great there's that down to earth you know it, it's it's a film that's we might think it's about the ghosts we might think it's about the effects but it's about a family it's about a family who go through they go through hell the stakes are high and they have to learn what it is to be a family and how much they care about each other and what they do. And I, honestly, I cannot say enough good things about this movie. Mm-hmm. So I think we've gotten to that point where we need to discuss the issue we've ducked around a little bit. Sure. We've touched on it a little bit. So convince me this is not a Spielberg movie. Okay. As someone, I mean, obviously, I have not made anything for Universal or anyone at all, but, you know, as someone that has directed. You know, stuff in the past, a producer's job is to make sure it gets done. 
And there, there's different producers you could come across. There's the people that let the director do their thing, and there's people like Steven Spielberg, kind of like what uh, you know, your friend Dave Parker was saying on Twitter, uh, who directed The Great Hills Run Red. If you haven't seen it, go see it. But anyways, uh, you know, he mentioned that, you know, it's kind of like what Guillermo del Toro. Or actually, I don't know if it was Dave Parker. Somebody said this on Twitter. Uh, said what del Toro does for movies he produces. You know, the director's there to direct, but Del Toro's very much involved. And I think that that's what Spielberg does. I mean, you have multiple people on the cast saying that, no, Toby was there. Toby directed. Toby's the one that did all this stuff. And, you know, you you look at a company like Platinum Dunes and Michael Bay and Brad Fuller and all them. They're notorious for kind of second-guessing the directors. That doesn't make them the directors. You know, the film might feel like a Steven Spielberg movie, but that's because he wrote it. You know, and after Toby Hooper turned in his first cut, Spielberg took over the editing bay. Toby had no say so. And Spielberg kind of like recut the whole movie. You know, Spielberg Mm. kind of made the movie his own after the fact. You know, yeah, we have the assistant uh, cameraman saying that it was, you know, Spielberg. But everyone like intimately involved in the film, Mm -hmm. like they've all said that Toby was the one directing us. He was the one. Same action, same cut. He did half the storyboards. You know, he was very much involved. When you have someone on par and, and that legendary and influential as Spielberg, there's no chance in hell that Spielberg's just going to sit there and not put his input in. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I, I feel like, like, like Mick Garris said, Toby Hooper directed it, but Spielberg had to do with the directing too. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like, and even... Even Spielberg said in the ad he took out, it was very much a collaborative effort. Mm -hmm. So I do feel like it's a Hooper movie, but I definitely do feel like Spielberg had a lot to do with those decisions as well. You know, Garris has said it's a Hooper movie, but even when Garris makes that argument, he really makes an argument that it's a Spielberg movie. Because what he says is he he uses the example of the movie Used Cars, which I believe is a Bob Zemeckis film. And it was an early film for Bob Zemeckis where Spielberg was having a lot of input with the actors on set overall. And Kurt Russell, God love him, basically said, look, I'll either take direction from you, Steve, or I'll take direction from Bob. I ain't taking direction from both. You two need to decide who it's going to be. Yeah. And what Garris has said, and Spielberg then realized, like, I need to back off a little bit, apologize, and was, like, much more hands-off at that point. Yeah. I think Toby Hooper didn't have someone speak up for him like that. Because yeah. at this point, like, nobody that's in Poltergeist was really established at, at that point in time. Craig T. Nelson went on to have, like, a very strong career uh, overall. But at that point, he wasn't. A super established person, I would argue. So everyone, yeah. what everyone had that kind of just happy to be there vibe. Like we're working on this big studio production. Spielberg is here. So, and when you watch a lot of the behind the scenes things on Poltergeist, a lot of times you see, and Spielberg is. Let's face it, like you watch any documentary on Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and the actors will tell you, like Hooper's not a very hands-on person. Exactly. He sets up the shops. He lets the actors do their thing. He's very quiet. He's very introspective. He's still a director. Spielberg is a much more animated person who eats, drinks, breathes, sleeps film. So he was basically allowed to run a little bit roughshod overall, and I think. 
I think allowed to run roughshod over Hooper as well. Um, whether he meant to or not, because you're right. This is a movie that he wrote for all. And he was setting things up. He was giving direction overall, even if Hooper was the one, you know, saying cut in action overall. But, you know, and there are moments in the film, like those early scenes with the family, like when the three kids are sitting around the table, that scene with Diane and Steve in bed talking to one another, those are pure Spielberg moments to me overall. Even the, like the, you know, the um, two-shot scene where you're pushing in and out at the end of the film, lifted straight from Jaws overall. Um, the But couldn't mo- that be an editorial an editorial very thing? possibly you're right it's very you know possibly. what i mean like like i, I get what you you're know, saying there spielberg spielberg didn't mm-hmm. like cooper's cut so i mean he mm-hmm. recut it and i mean i i i feel like you know i don't know how much weight is to this but you know there was always talks when it comes to hatchet three you know mm-hmm. adam green had done the first two movies he was kind of done with the series he wrote a third one and he passed the baton to bj mcdonald to direct hatchet three and you know, from what has been said, you know, kind of stepped on McDonald's feet the whole thing and sec- second guessed every decision. You know what I mean? And I feel like, you know, no offense to Spielberg. I mean, he directed some of my favorite movies of all time, but I feel like that is what mostly probably happened on Poltergeist. I feel like, you know, Hooper directed it, but I also feel like Spielberg was, you know, he had the clout to kind of step on toes and, you know, override that. If he didn't like something, Ultimately, Steven Spielberg would probably say, no, let's do it this way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't, I don't think that that means he directed the film. I, I just think that he kind of – I, th- I think Toby kind of signed up for something that he didn't know what he was signing up for. I, I would agree. And I will say when you get to that last act, when you get to the really – when you think the movie is over and you get to that last act, that to me is pure Toby Hooper. Mm-hmm. Everything from it just it becomes so gleefully anarchistic at that point, very much like the last act of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And it's absolutely giddy with the way the violence plays out overall that that to me is if if, if anything points to this being a Hooper jam, it's and to me, it's the best sequence in the whole movie, by the yep. way, like the last 20 minutes of Poltergeist are the best 20 minutes in the whole fucking movie. Um, I just give me that for two hours and just like hook it right into my veins. Basically, that's what I want in a movie. Um, you know that, what's bizarre about that is that mm-hmm. when I was younger, um, we watched it through the first time, of course. But then um, on the next viewings, my parents would always stop it after mm-hmm. uh, Joe Beth left the driveway and um, the car was packed. It would always be stopped then. So rewatching it as an adult, I didn't remember that last mm-hmm. part. Um, and it is bonkers. And mm-hmm. I, I it's it's it really changes the way you look at that movie. But as a kid, watching it through the first time, that wasn't the part that scared me. That those aren't the images that stayed with me. It was the small stuff that uh, Jerry had mentioned. But again, if I had watched that over and over again, ooh, I would have been real scared of corpses. So. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Oh, yeah. And I think you are you had much better parents than I am overall, (laughs) because like uh, that's the part I could not wait to show Ada at the end, because I think it's, you know, like the the, and I guess like, you know, one of the the rumors were was real skeletons were used on set. And that one's been proven true. Yeah. 
So God love you, Toby Hooper. Um, the, <laughs> mm-hmm. the, the produ- and, and I would say not just like the direction of that, but when you look at the design of it, like when you look at the design of those corpses, those look like they were lifted right from the set of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and brought on. At that, they're just really horrific. It's just mm-hmm. they're wonderful overall. And you know, watching um, Joe Beth just come face-to-face with these hideous, grinning corpses. It's just, it's wonderful. And I think it's even more so than, well, not even more so, because what we remember the most is is Carol Ann and like, the, the snowy television screen. Um, so I would say like where I come down on this movie, and I don't have a real big dog in the fight, is I think like a lot of movies, it's a real collaborative effort between yeah. two immensely talented people, one of which I think is really underappreciated for his um, contributions, especially to genre cinema. Yeah, definitely. I, yeah, I agree with you hundred percent. I guess we'll end it with this. I, I would like to know, and I am probably in Jerry. I think that through the discussion of this movie, poltergeist has become to me what scream is to you. A movie yeah. that as I'm discussing it, I'm finding way more things I appreciate about this movie overall. I, well, you know, it, it's a film that, I mean, I think I maybe said it earlier, but I, I don't know. Maybe I, I smoked too much pot, mm-hmm. but uh, <laughs> it's, it's a movie that I think isn't seen for what it really is a lot of times in different discussions. You know, it's, it's obviously when you talk about classic horror films, Poltergeist always comes up and it's always like, you know, that we talk about, you know, the argument of directing or the curse and all these things. And we talk about how it's an entertaining movie, but we don't have enough discussions and conversations about how I think, like I said earlier, how deep the film is, which it is. Mm-hmm. It's a very good example of a family, the familial bonds, uh, you know, what it is to be a parent, you know, what it is to be afraid of things. And mm-hmm. I think that. Throughout this whole episode, we've had such good conversations about just that. So, I mean, honestly, I I appreciate the mo- the movie even more than I did at the beginning of this episode, which mm-hmm. is a lot because I love the film. Yeah, my hope is that we, as a you know, as a panel, stuck to the more to the merits of the movie itself than a lot of the behind the scenes drama. Exactly, and I think mm-hmm. we've done that. So, my question for is this. 40 years later, or almost 40 years later, how well does Poltergeist hold up? I think there's no doubt that there are things that um, don't hold up as well. I mean, there are some special effects that uh, I think are, oh, it's like, oh, that's that's cute, you know. But then some of them really hold up mm-hmm. very well. Um, but there, there are a few things that make me go, uh, I can, I can, I can see the magic trick, you mm-hmm. know? Um, on the other hand, I think what does make the movie hold up is this, these central ideas that we've been discussing the whole episode having to do with fear and, um, the family unit and, you know, what a traumatic event can do to a family. Um, and I think that's why the film continues to last. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, when you talk about family and how families have changed over the years, um, this, this family doesn't look so much like the modern family that you see in 2020, um, the way that it did in the eighties, but right. Uh, not just that, but I mean, when you talk about just the fear of technology, I mean, that's rampant still, uh, 
And this movie, as dated as it is, and it's just a TV screen, it it still speaks to the year 2020. And um, the fears are still so genuine and so real. The again, not to go back to it, but, but Jerry's point of the small things, it's, that's, that's going to stand the test of time. I mean, every kid's going to be scared of that shadow on the wall. It's universal and it's, uh, it's timeless. You know, there, there are movies that with time become somewhat problematic, you know, as we progress as a society and, you know, socially, uh, like Revenge of the Nerds and a lot of those movies, Porky's and stuff. Uh, and then like The Burning is, is one that, I mean, I loved growing up. I watched it for a magazine article I wrote and I was just like, wow, this is one of the most toxic, <laughs> misogynistic movies I've ever seen written by uh, Harvey Weinstein. But uh, <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> Weird. I, no, but the thing about Poltergeist, and I think those films, I think when people defend them, it's more based on nostalgia. Mm-hmm. But sure. with Poltergeist, there are things that are dated, but there is enough in that film that just makes it, I think, a beautiful movie. That, like, like I, I, I use the word magical, which sounds so fucking silly, but that is exactly what Poltergeist is to me. You know, like the stuff that's dated, it doesn't like. I don't find myself like being pulled out of the movie. I'm not by taken it. out of the movie by it either. I, it was just it's, a, yeah. it's, no, 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 no. I wasn't saying you were. Uh, yeah. It's just I, I feel like the movie does stand the test of time. And I think 40 years later, that is what makes it a classic film and a beloved film is that these themes, these characters, uh, these things that they go through, they it is a universal theme. You know, these are universal themes. And I think that it, that is the reason it stands the test of time, because those things will always be around. I think there yeah, I won't use the word magical, but what I will use <laughs> is there's a warmth to this movie. Overall, that is not present. And I think, Jerry, you hit it on the head when we it's going to be interesting when we get to the remake overall, because there is watching this movie tonight with and and I watched this twice within a week. And the first time I watched it was downstairs on my own, no one around. And I'm like, man, this movie is kind of bloated. Like, I'm really struggling to get through the two hours of this right now. Watching it tonight with you know Claire and Ada. I enjoyed it so much more uh, mm-hmm. overall. And, also, you know, uh, one of the things that my wife said is like, this looks like a real family. Like mom looks like an appropriate mom. Dad mm-hmm. looks like a dad. Like it's not very slick, you know, Hollywood people overall. Like these look like people like you and I overall. Um, there's a warmth. There's a caring to these people. I like overall. I would much rather watch some of the dated special effects of this movie, like the face ripping scene is a little bit hard to get through in high definition. Um, (laughs) But you know what? I would much rather watch that prosthetic come apart all day long than a CGI effect that is dated six months after it comes out. Uh, Totally. And honestly, I, I think when it comes to me talking about the movie, I think in closing, my real feelings on this is if you take the poltergeist out of poltergeist, <laughs> you have a good family drama. Yeah. Sure. Family drama, sure. For sure. <laughs> Absolutely. I have to bring back that I've been waiting for it, Jerry. I've been waiting for that one. We've yeah. really gone away from using that joke, and I think the show has suffered. There it really go. suffers back. for it. It's so we didn't even make that joke when there were three movies that Corey Glover was in. 
Corey Glover. That, from that's the singer. Jesus Christ. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we didn't even use that joke. We had three movies that Corey Feldman was in. It was right there. Right there. Yeah. <laughs> well, listeners, we hope you have enjoyed our discussion of Poltergeist. And I think by the time I edit everything, it will be about as long as the movie itself. So if you want to cue it up and maybe listen to it as a director's commentary, go ahead and do our fan commentary. Go ahead and do that. Yes, I'm saying that I actually directed Poltergeist at this point. Oh. Um, <laughs> if you're the director, you're going to be like, I am. I am. Pangina so. was the director. But I'm actually going to go out. Like, I've never seen Poltergeist 2 and 3. And oh. I just got in the special edition um, Scream Factory movies Uh-oh. because I live to put money in Justin Beam's pocket at this point. It's basically why I am here. No, because we love Justin. Um, so I'm actually going to go undo the shrink wrap on the special edition Poltergeist 2 disc right now and toss that in uh, and give that a watch for the first time. So I'm actually excited to go watch this overall. Um, And I would say, folks... 17 oh, the worm. Oh, geez. The worm. Okay. Oh, God, kinder the trauma. worm. Oh, my gosh. Kinder oh, trauma. Don't yeah. spoil the you, you, guys, you guys are going to get an earful of Brian's kinder trauma next week. Yeah, don't. Wonderful. Yeah, okay. So I'm looking forward to that. All so, right. folks, hit us up on uh, over on Twitter at pod and pend uh, or pod and pendulum. At some point, we'll have some sort of website up with everything on it. But, you know, that takes time. Uh, and I'm super fucking lazy lately. So, um, but we hope you've enjoyed the show. Veronica, Brian, Jerry, thank you so much. Thank you. See you thank guys you. next week. <laughs>